0: Well, yes. thank you very much, Bob, for this for this friendly, nice uh, introduction, and also for having invited me. It's a great pleasure for me to be here today, and uh, yeah, to talk about sense of justice and spirits of devastation. Um, I would like uh, to you to imagine, as a start, two scenes. From my fieldwork, scene A, we are attending an evening ritual at a Muslim shrine in Western India. Hundreds of people throng around the tomb of the saint when a ritual specialist is offering prayers. His chant is broadcasted into every corner of the world shrine compound. Close to the tomb, women are crowding on the left side, men on the right. But as the congregation spills out further into the compound, the neat separation of the sexes dissipates into rows of men, women, and children standing side by side, forming concentric circles around those in the center. While the congregation repeats the prayer and hundreds of voices ascend to the sky, other individuals become restless. A woman is running up and down, crossing the lines between gendered spaces, pushing herself through the crowd of men, apparently oblivious of the code of conduct ruling at shrines. A man is jerking back and forth, screaming obscenities. Another is forcefully banging his back against a pillar, apparently oblivious of the pain. At least 50 people of all ages are screaming, running, swearing, or shaking, while the congregation remains unperturbed by the turmoil exploding in its midst. People gravely continue praying. So that's one scene. And the other scene is, a nurse has unlocked the iron gate of the female ward in a mental hospital and allows us to enter. About 50 women are crouching in the inner courtyard of the newly built ward. Most of them wear ragged clothes, some are dressed in an institutional gown. Our visit causes great excitement. We are beleaguered by women who are trying to tell us something, but are hardly able of articulating intelligible words. One woman manages to tell us that she loves her father who hasn't come to see her in a long time. Another says that she has no one, she is completely alone. A few women take no notice of what is happening around them, staring vacantly into space. A doctor is sitting at a desk calling individual patients and handing out psychotropic medicines. I recorded these observations in the course of fieldwork which I conducted in Gujarat between 2008 and 2010, and I will still continue with this, following up on possession practices and the recent upsurge of the discourse of mental health in India. The shrine and the mental hospital are two settings where people behaving in ways considered abnormal by the social environment and also perhaps by themselves, are likely to be taken to by worried relatives. There are other options, of course, uh, in India, but uh, I won't talk about them at the moment. The mental hospital and the shrine constitute two important sites in the larger field of medical care structured by relationships between scientific and religious positions. The boundaries between diverse positions in the pluralistic medical field in India may have become blurred, as medical anthropologists have argued. Nevertheless, a shrine and a mental hospital depend on quite distinct ideas, rationals for action and practices. Why do some people in contemporary India send a mad relative to the mental hospital while others take him to a religious healing site? I suggest that the decision involves, amongst other things, different values, specifically values of personhood. An explanatory model of mental illness in terms of sorcery gives primary value to social relationships, whereas these are secondary in psychiatric classifications. For the latter, biological factors, neuroscientific inventions, and the individual person are of primary explanatory value. In this lecture, I must confine myself to exploring the values to which the discourses which are prevalent at shrines, and that is a discourse of sorcery, gives expression. How are these values lived, experienced, and suffered by the people we engage with in our fieldwork. Given that values find their existence in people, to quote Rio and Smeldahl, I shall first discuss sorcery in relation to personhood and madness, and then talk about the saints of justice and their transactions with pilgrims, transactions of counter sorcery, which is healing. And finally, discuss sorcery and mental health in global modernities. So, we are in Western India. And I come to the first point, notions of sorcery, personhood, and madness. In Gujarat and elsewhere in Western India, sorcery is as much a discourse of power as a discourse of the dark sides of intimate relationships. It is also about human agency, and about how ties of kinship and friendship are turned into enmity. Sorcery, today, resides in undoing kinship, relationships. Its power is socially fragmenting and tears the minds of individuals apart. Notions of sorcery rest upon a triadic model of relationships, with the sorcerer being the absent third person. He enables the conversion of negative emotions and destructive desires of one human being into the power of harming or killing another, another human being through secretly attacking his mind, body, and self. In Gujarat, priests of a goddess, the Buas, are typically thought to share the ambiguity attached to the goddess Shakti, that is her capacity to create and destroy. (coughs) Buas are suspected to acquire powers of sorcery in secret rituals dedicated to Kali in the dark night of Kali Chaudas preceding Navratri, the annual festival of the goddess. Apart from Hindu priests, Shaivite and Tantric ascetics, as well as Muslim ritual specialists, are also believed to be potential Jadukars, or magicians. Sorcery is a transgressive practice, transcending religious, ethnic, caste, and to some extent also class boundaries. People use various terms to refer to the disturbing knowledge of sorcerers and what they can do. They speak of black magic in English, of Kala Jadu in Urdu, of Meli Vidya, dirty knowledge or dirty sciences in Gujarati, and of Meli Vastu in the language of Adivasis. Of the many damages and afflictions brought over people by black magic, madness is particularly devastating. Ritual aggression directed against the head of a victim deranging his mind, his brain, and his behavior, culminates in the social death of a person and often of her family as well. Practices of black magic are thus closely related with the dark side of kinship, as Kashira noted for Africa, and the dangers of reciprocity, as Kapfara noted for Sri Lanka. The discourse of sorcery projects personal enmity and hatred arising in domestic and other face-to-face relationships as the pivotal motivation to harm and destroy others. It thrives upon a notion of personhood in terms of individuals or permeable selves distinct from the bounded and autonomous unit of the individual originating in Christianity with its inbuilt Cartesian dualism of body and mind. Whereas sorcery is concerned with aspects that endanger or violate norms governing interactions between persons, anthropological debates of Indian personhood generally share a concern with normative or positive dimensions of sociality. Of these, Dumont's relational or holistic concept and Marriott's transactional model of Indian personhood are both significant to understand sorcery as an individualizing force which operates through transacting coded substances. Sorcery is an attack on two levels. On the level of values, it goes against social relatedness and the unity of the family or the household. On the level of the empirical individual or the self who is significantly excluded from Dumont's theory. On the level of the the self, sorcery destroys a human being's ability to participate in the normal course of life and pursue individual goals such as educational achievement, financial success, enjoyment of a harmonious marriage and things like that, ordinary things of life. People engaging in sorcery achieve their destructive ends through the manipulation of normal transactions such as the sharing of food. To exist, Marriott wrote, individual persons absorb heterogeneous material influences they must also give out from themselves particles of their own coded substances that may then reproduce in others something of the nature of the persons in whom they have originated. This is, as we shall see, what also works in sorcery. Kapferer has uh, expressed this fact in different words. He said, sorcery arises from the magicality of sociality, or to quote, that constitutive action of human beings, whereby they form their relations in their life worlds and affect the lives of others. Quote end. In the context of household and family life, the preparation, shared consumption, and digestion of food is a process in which a self absorbs the influences of others and emits them mixed with his own. Family life is as much the site of love, care, and solidarity as it may give rise to emotions of envy and jealousy, personal grievances and hatred. While family relationships are fraught with ambivalences, food is an ambiguous medium sustaining nourishment and pleasure as much as bringing about destruction and despair. The most common technique of black magic consists in secretly feeding a victim food poisoned by impure matter. For example, by mixing excrements or by infusing it with curses, with spells of sorcery. Thus going mad often begins in the stomach of an afflicted self. As the handling of food is the task of women, it is frequently they who are accused of sorcery. One of my male informants found out that he had been attacked by his own mother, an idea which others found most reprehensible. Suspicions pertaining to food spoiled by sorcery, moreover, need not remain remain confined to the family. Gifts of poisoned food may also be exchanged between neighbors whose relationships are strained by hostility and envy. In such cases, the accused is more often a man. In general, people in Gujarat consider sorcery as highly immoral acts which nevertheless pervades social life in many ways. The powers of sorcery, people say, are like the air one breathes, invisible but everywhere. These powers are known as Bala. Bala is a multifaceted term referring in Indian textual traditions to physical strength, such as needed by the king to rule over people, or by the warrior to win in battle, or by the yogi for wrestling and winning in wrestling. In addition, Bala can also refer to the power of an agent to influence the thinking of another human being and to enter or take appearance, take Avesha, in his or her body. This kind of power is mobilized in practices of black magic performed by a sorcerer on behalf of a client. Connotations of overpowering, of taking possession, and of entering into the thinking and feelings of a human being underlie the notions of bala as that force that drives a person mad. Those afflicted embody the bala, the spirit of the sender who succeeded in overpowering, suppressing, or defeating a self. When people talk about the bala power hitting them at the core of their existence, destroying the health of loved ones, creating panic and floundering crisis of a self, they talk about the crimes of sorcery, committed against the foundations of sociality, building up trustworthy interpersonal relationships through nurture. The powers of sorcery instill terror in both a self and a family. Sorcery illness, jadu ki bimadi, belongs to a class of possession-induced illnesses that are distinguished by the fact that it is sent by a human being uh, in contrast to illnesses which are brought about by spirits of the dead possessing somebody. Here it's a human being who, who possesses another one. The effects of the sorcery illnesses are highly individualizing and come to the fore in the mad behavior of the afflicted person. He or she may withdraw from the social world seeking loneliness or behave abusively, disrespectful and aggressively towards those around them. The person may become confused and disoriented, run away from home without finding his way back, stop studying, working and fulfilling everyday obligations. Sometimes they talk in intelligible languages or they refuse to wear clothes, run around naked, and they also threaten to harm others and themselves. In severe cases, a mad person becomes completely oblivious to others, locked into a world of her own to which others find no access. The word used in in Western and North India, for going or being mad, pagal shares relationships, family relationships with crazy in English or verrückt in German, insofar as it covers a wide array of meanings. It may be used jokingly with children, describe some harmless idiosyncrasy of a person, or it may refer to a scale of disorders ranging from temporary disturbances of behavior to chronic and severe forms of mental disorder. While all of these may be covered by the diagnosis of sorcery illness, a category which does not differentiate sharply between symptoms and syndromes, the pinnacle of becoming ensorcelled is a manifestation of madness which closely resembles the psychiatric category of schizophrenia and I will come back to this point later on. Saints of justice, I I now come to the second point, saints of justice and the transactions of pilgrims of suffering, so we are at this shrine in Gujarat. When a person's abnormal behavior begins to worry parents, spouses, or other members of the family, he or she might be taken to the shrine of Miradatta, which you see here, and I'll show you some more about it shortly. Although the shrine is widely known all over Western India as a powerful center of healing, the rituals practiced there do not involve healers. Rather, the ritual specialists managing the shrine refer to their roles as vakil, as advocates. They mediate the powers of a group of related saints who are also called doctor and judge, both in English. Those pilgrims who are afflicted by possession illnesses are referred to as savalis, that is, seekers of answers for the misfortune that they are experiencing. If it turns out that balas are involved, the question becomes one of why one has become a victim of injustice and how to get rid of the overpowering force of the attacker. Depending on the severity of the problem, people stay days, months, or years. For example, a girl of marital age was brought by her mother, grandmother, and a cousin because she was tearing out tufts of hair from her head. The mother suspected that someone from her caste, envious of her daughter's beauty, had done black magic against her in order to spoil her marriage chances. They were staying for four days. Another example is that of five brothers who had already spent one year at the shrine when I met them. One of them explained that all five brothers had become mad because a neighbor harboring a grudge against his father, had sent his bala against them so that none of the young, young men could progress in life. And they were thinking that perhaps they might leave soon. They were better. Unlike other pilgrimage places moreover, this shrine shelters a significant number of long-term pilgrims or patients, about 100 at the time of fieldwork, some of whom stay eight years or decades or even until their death. Some long-term pilgrims of suffering stay alone, others live in constellations which I call fragments of families. Such fragments may consist of women who are separated from their husbands and the wider family because they care for an afflicted adult son or daughter or of men who live apart from their parents, brothers' families, and their own children because they are looking after a sister or a wife, or vice versa. Whatever length of time pilgrims of suffering are spending at the shrine, they all participate in the ritual routines, merging religious, praying with healing practices, as well as with procedures of trials, like at a court. In the absence of healers, spatial arrangements charged with meanings calling for specific ritual actions and illness performances take on heightened significance. The shrine of Midadatta is more than a building. It is a moral landscape, constituted by a kinship relationships between several saintly figures, and b by their courts and this is also law courts, also used in English, where moral crimes of sorcery are negotiated. The largest shrines in this landscape are the void compounds of Data, to which the ancients you have just seen. He's in village one, and that of his mother Rastima in village two. Both these graves are surrounded by other tombs. Next to Midadatta are buried uh, his father and father's brothers, while the tomb of more distant lineage members are lying behind these premises. (coughs) A smaller shrine sheltering um, a mother's brother, it's Mamu Saab, marks the entrance to the territory of this shrine compound of the Adai Saint Miradatta in this village one. In the second village, where the mother's shrine is, a small co- uh, place, a small shrine, referred to as kacheri, that is office, marks the entrance to this uh, sacred landscape. And this kacheri is supposed to be the place where Miradatta, as a child, had already administ- administered justice amongst the villagers when they had conflicts or disputes. Um, so, and this kacheri especially qualifies um, the authority and the power of the saints as administrators of justice. In this way, the spatial arrangements of the shrine objectify two spheres of values. On the one hand, one is the holistic order of kinship The other is the individualized order of law courts. In this spatial depiction, the family unit, blood and milk, consisting of powerful moral agents, is elevated as a part of a larger lineage. At the same time, the tombs are referred to as law courts. Midadatta, the heroic son, presides over the Supreme Court, whereas his mother, Rastima, as well as his mother's brother, are somewhat less powerful and preside over high courts. In this configuration, the father's mother's grinding store becomes also an important place, namely the police post, where the spirits, the suspects, are interrogated and grinded. Um, Maybe I could show you this. A, sh- a brief clip how what happens at Mother's Stadima's grinding stone. Yeah, this is uh, this was the place, and the ritual specialist he explained um, that all the complaints are read at night by the saints, by Miradatta and by his mother, and then they they take the decision what should be done. And these are very important uh, categories, the decisions and the hukum, the orders, um, and they are in fact, then they guide the healing process. Um, Thus the saintly tombs represent... On the one hand, norms of sociality in terms of hierarchical, complementary, and gendered relationships between kin, mother, son, brother, sister, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, they appropriate the signs of mundane contemporary power, law courts, that is, relatively self-contained, linked, and powerful institutional actors in a democracy. The spatial order of the shrine reflects an encompassing logic which also informs notions of power. The terms by which the saints are addressed refer to various religious and political dimensions of power and authority, such as Pierre Baba, stressing the Islamic embedment and the relationship to God, to Allah, as the source of all knowledge and of justice, of course, Then Dada invokes the figure of authority within the patriarchal household, the grandfather, the paternal grandfather. Then Sarkar is another term used for the saints which identify him on the one hand with kingship but also with the present Indian government. It's also Sarkar. So the power of a saint like Miradatta both partakes in and transcends the latter dimensions of power. Their power, which is called Karamat, is the miraculous power of saints, is also encompassing the Bala forces or the Bala power. It is thus an ambivalent, creative, healing and administer, administering justice as well as destructive and punishing power, whereas the Balas are unambiguously destructive. They are only negative. Um, This hybrid um, construction of power is thus constituted constituted as a hierarchical relationship between destruction or um, sending illness and creation or healing and administering uh, justice. The shrine and the spaces... Uh, and its spaces provide an encompassing bulwark against the fragmenting and individualizing forces of sorcery. Since ritual specialists pray for pilgrims but otherwise do not get involved in practices of healing, the process becomes one steered mostly by the afflicted themselves and their relatives. However, pilgrims do not think that they are the ones who take decisions but that it's the saints, and they follow only the saints' orders. At their court, human will is by, displaced by the saints' agency. By guiding people in dreams and states of trance, the saints reveal the process whereby, whereby a person came under the control of a hostile other. This happens in similar exchanges of coded substances which normally establish desired social relationships. Those who have become afflicted with madness have absorbed the negative emotions and destructive intentions of ill-wishers. Through grotesque uh, convulsions, they give their tormentors a face. The afflicted have come to embody the destructive forces overpowering them constantly emitting their horrible substances. In the healing process, afflicted selves engage in transacting simultaneously with disempowering spirits and re-empowering saints, all in their bodies. By sitting close to the tomb, touching it, one absorbs the saint's essence. By inhaling his incense, the sickening forces inside one's body are burned, and forced outside, and by drinking the water with which the tombs have been washed, the spirits are made to surface. And finally, they are overpowered. Throughout the day, patients of sorcery transform the shrine in a gigantic digestive machine. All their actions, controlled by the saints, are directed at bringing out into the, into the open that what has unknowingly and unjustly hit them. People may scream in pain or vomit out the substances poisoned with sorcery spells, um, and the substances coated with envy and hatred, attacking the mind and the brain of victims are quite literally brought out. Once, when I came to the shrine, a girl was sitting there and people uh, called me, And there were lots of razor blades and lemons, and they said, oh, she had just vomited out all this. This has been uh, the food which in her stomach through the sorcery spell became razor blades and very harmful things. But I want to show you another, no, not yet. All the impurities, aggressions, and terror produced by sorcery are deposited upon the saints. Ritual specialists help their digestion by channelizing them outside into the shrine's sewer ponds. Spirits embodied by the afflicted are ordered to bath in the dirty water as penances until they accept their subjugation. Through such processes of reversal, the individualizing and fragmenting effects of sorcery are gradually transformed. As patients move between the tombs and enact their afflictions, they absorb and internalize the empowering and protecting qualities of the saints. Care, strength, intelligence, protection, justice. One develops trust again, against all odds such as family relationships ruined by dishonesty, jealousies, and hatred. So perhaps I could show you another short clip of, uh, hmm, of a man who has a uh, part of, of his cure was to sit in the sewer, sewer pond in the dirty water so um, <coughs> This, everything has has to come out, and an important stage in the process of healing selves by making them whole again, is when the saints have forced the possessing agent to reveal his or her identity, as this young man had just uh, said. As the shrines are courts, where sorcery is brought under the law of possession, people will not admit to actively take revenge on those accused. The decision again is of how to punish an occult perpetrator will again be taken by the morally superior and powerful saints, not by those who feel attacked or by human beings. Most people, however, say that they break up all social ties with the persons identified as aggressors, but they will not challenge them openly with their knowledge. Sometimes an afflicted person learns that his or her tormentor has died in the meantime, like his aunt, that young man's aunt. His death or her death is then thought of as a confirmation that a saint has punished the aggressor. Okay, I now come to the last part by way of a conclusion and I will briefly compare sorcery with mental health in a global modernities perspective. Considering the two scenes evoked at the beginning of my talk, what would logically have to follow now is a description of the workings of the mental hospital. Time prevents me from doing this. I can only point to the closed structures of the mental hospital compared to the open structures prevailing at religious healing sites, such as this shrine. What I found most striking in this regard are the differences of handling people behaving abnormally in both institutions. I think that it has become quite apparent that at the shrine, those who have gone mad uh, become encompassed by the normal, whereas in a mental hospital, it is a site where the mentally disordered are excluded from the social world of the normal. Each institution aims at controlling anomalies of illness, but each one is embedded in, a different, in different values of personhood. The difference between, the, between them is revealed in the practices whereby social values of personhood are imagined, like kinship holes, diseased or diseased individuals. They're made and unmade, confirmed and contested. Because of course, many psychiatrists would not agree that this has anything to do with healing mentally ill people. They think it's just superstitious and basically should best be banned. The coexistence of psychiatry or mental hospitals and counter sorcery shrines, however, in the field of medical pluralism in India, testifies to the conditions of global modernity shaped by the circulation of Western concepts and regimes on the one hand, and by their appropriation, repudiation, or indigenization on the other. Individualism seems to me one such Western regime of major significance, which is channelized through political, religious, as well as medical transformations. One answer to the question of why some people are sent to the mental hospital while others are taken to a religious site is therefore to be be found in diverse evaluations of the impaired self in modernity. The embodied images of the impaired self produced by the Indian discourse of sorcery and by the psychiatric category of schizophrenia share some notable similarities. According to the German psychologist Klaus Lefering, schizophrenia is the prototypical disease of modernity. It mirrors the general condition of modern human beings um, their life as it is shaped by meaningless acceleration of arbitrariness, disruption, and fragmentation. Levering regards Western discourses epitomizing schizophrenia as an enigmatic and meaningful disease which mirrors thus significant at- attributes of modernity. For individuals affected by schizophrenia, the disease entails an escalation of the dissolution of social relationships, a dropping out of social relatedness, and a breaking out of shared communicative practices. Schizophrenia thus contains an exaggerated representation of the social effects emphasized by classical modernization theorists of what the modern break with the traditional society amounts to. looked at at from this angle, those who are hit by sorcery illness, at least in its most severe form, embody, as do patients of schizophrenia, fragmenting, individualizing, and agonizing forces. Rather than testifying to a dichotomy of the modern and the traditional, however, patients of counter-sorcery and patients of psychiatry are creations of competing and simultaneous existing discourses in a shared modernity. The psychiatric discourse of schizophrenia stresses impaired subjectivity, whereas the discourse of sorcery illness accentuates impaired sociality. Or, to put it differently, They exemplify a constant tension between the reproduction of substantialities or individualization and social holds or hierarchization, and thus shaping and articulating different forces within Indian modernity. Dumont had based his theory of hierarchy as tradition on the opposition between the West and the rest. As is well known, this has given rise to a wide range of criticism. What has often been overlooked, I think, by many critics is that Dumont did not construct an absolute difference but a relational one expressed in diverse configurations of values, relationships between holistic and individualistic ideas. Recently, the concept of hierarchy as an analytic tool has received renewed vigor from at least two sides. One is the criticism of methodological individualism in contemporary anthropology and the attempt to free the theory of hierarchy from its evolutionary bias. And the other is the advancement of the sociology of individualism in Western settings. The latter is proposed by the French sociologist Alain Ehrenberg. As Ehrenberg explores mental health as a value, his work is particularly relevant for the comparative consideration of the themes addressed here. He approaches mental health as part of variable cultural discourses of the values of individualism and personal autonomy. And as individualism and personal autonomy Characteristic of Western societies such as France and the US. In these societies, the idea that society falls into ruins, as modernization theorists have argued since generations, um, this theory that uh, society falls into ruins because of rampant individualism is pervasive. An indication of the decline of the social is the apparent increase in mental illness. This idea, Ehrenberg argues, is a social fact which sociologists have elaborated into a myth disguised as social theory. The problem, according to Ehrenberg, with this kind of theory is that it rests, it rests on methodological individualism operating with the logic of exclusion based on the dualism between individual and individual and society. An alternative to such an approach, Ehrenberg finds in Dumont's theory of hierarchy, applying it now to France and the U.S., and especially to the ideal of mental health. Thus, in France and the U.S., mental health includes personal autonomy as the highest value, which corresponds to other values, such as equality and freedom of individuals. Although the value of individual autonomy has emerged in France and in the U.S. in different and historically specific ways, and therefore they also refer to different meanings, at the same time these are values which subordinate dependency or the dependent, but one always has to think this together. Um, autonomy, personal autonomy and dependency and what ultimately um, defines mental illness has a lot to do with dependency. Mental health thus contains the ideal of personal autonomy and encompasses dependency which becomes associated with mental illness. Ehrenberg shows how psychiatry as a science of mental disorder has been transformed by the rise and influence of psychoanalysis. Psychoanalytic constructions superseded the psychiatric discourse of the abnormal and thus contributed to the expansion of a more general language game of mental health. This language game allows social actors to deal with those problems which are evoked by the values of personal autonomy. They suffer from illnesses of the ideal. At the same time, mental health expresses attitudes to contingency, the ways in which misfortune, suffering, and disturbances of social relationships are perceived and tackled. In seeking the causes of misfortune in psychological, the unconscious, biological, the brain, or social, the society explanations, French and American people and other Westerners, I suppose, seek to control misfortune on the one hand and to make sense of it on the other. This, then, is not so very different from the discourse of of sorcery and counter-sorcery, which also expresses attitudes towards contingency, albeit in a different language game. It expresses a configuration of values in which health includes a person's wholeness of being in the world, a self connected to others in harmonious relationships. The value of wholeness does not imply that the self is unimportant or unreal, but rather that selfishness as a value is subordinated. Sorcery gives expression to to the destructive and dangerous potential of selfishness or individualism. The health of a family or kinship unit depends on the non-selfishness of the members who nevertheless need to be capable to act as individuals, as empirical individuals, in order to keep the whole thing going. Thus the powers of sorcery do not only impair the individual, but fragment the whole family and its unity. Finally, and again corresponding to the relational social logic of sorcery, the causes of suffering and abjection, as manifested in madness, are sought in human power, in human agency, rather than in individualized units, such as the biological body or the brain. Ambiguous sociality and human power are thus perceived at the root of such of much misfortune. To conclude then, in the new millennium, psychiatric categories and mental health have become more widely talked about and perceived as a social problem in India than before. What remains to be done is to explore further and from different angles the ways in which psychiatric and religious practices interact. Values provide one important and, I think, often overlooked angle when circulations of mental health shaping global modernity are at stake. Thank you very much.